This week on Life and Faith. The enlightenment is about the great individual, or in some cases, the corporate exercise that allows for the individual's freedom and that kind of thing. But the flip side of that is, is that how do we get along? How do we connect one another? What are we here for? Those kinds of questions. Christianity is a fundamentally paradoxical beauty. The fact that I was hanging around ashrams doing goat bleating was indicating that something was missing. How do performing artists see the world? Because I'm nothing like a performing artist. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Well, what would cause a young, agnostic Texan college student to delve into the Bible to the extent that he would make a career out of being a biblical scholar who writes technical commentaries the size and weight of a brick? Well, my guest today is that person. But don't be fooled. He's no ivory tower academic. He can talk about all sorts of topics from films to sport, even the intricacies of the LBW law in cricket. Daryl Bock is an old friend of CPX, and over the years when he's come to Australia, we've met up to discuss any number of things, politics in the US, cultural currents we swim in, the fortunes of the Sydney Swans AFL team, the deep questions people are asking themselves in our respective countries. Daryl was in town recently, and we caught up in the CPX studio, and this time we got to some more personal aspects of the Daryl Bock story. Daryl Box, so good to see you back in Australia and in person. Lovely to see you. Well, you know, it's post-COVID time, and uh, I've shown up. I don't have a mask. I recognize you and what you look like. You haven't changed that much. Oh, a little grayer, maybe. A little grayer. Yeah, oh, but I other than that, so. not bad. And you're in new digs here, so, I mean, this is really nice. Yeah. But so it's great to be back in Sydney. I've really missed being in Sydney, so it's been nice to be back. Yeah, it's fun to have you back. Now, I want to talk to you about lots of things today, your life, the things you've been interested in and uh, how that's played out for you across many years now. But you've been a very serious biblical scholar, if not a serious person all the time. Um, let's think about that because that's a area that is a little, it's a bit unusual, let's be honest. But how did you get so interested in it? Like, How did you get interested in the Bible to the extent that you did such that you dedicated a career to that. Well, and the story actually starts when I was a, a freshman in high school, which in the United States would mean I was about 14 years old. And I had a friend share with me uh, who had just been to a Christian camp and had just become a Christian himself. And so he, his theological message can be summarized in one sentence, said three ways. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. <laughs> Just emphasis on a different word. That was all. Well, if I asked him, you know, why do I need Jesus, et cetera, he was struggling, and I thought he had lost his marbles. Yeah. And uh, just was coming from a completely different place. Wasn't interested, et cetera. But then uh, as I went through high school and then early on in college, I was constantly running into Christians who actually lived out what they believed, which was also, in some cases, maybe a little bit unusual. And I even had a Christian roommate in college. We have what we call potluck roommate. You go to a school, and the school decides who you're going to marry for a year. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, it you can know, be roommate, good or bad. Good or bad, yeah. I mean, we call it potluck roommate. And it can be bad or good. And so we really struck up a really good friendship. He was a deeply committed Christian, very interested in his faith, very interested in me as a person. I would describe myself as an agnostic, 
I wasn't sure God existed and really wasn't all that interested necessarily, which is a great prerequisite for being a Bible scholar. (laughs) And uh, by the time I made a decision that there was something authentic about the way these people were living and looking at life, and it was different than where I was headed because I had no idea as to what life was all about, et cetera, I hit the ground running. And uh, started a, and this will sound strange, but I literally started a Bible study with my roommate my sophomore year in college that started well off with six people. And by the time my senior year, three years later, we had people packed in every room in our four-room bedroom apartment complex, some of whom couldn't see the person who was teaching the class. You couldn't Zoom in back then. No, no, you couldn't (laughs) Zoom in. No, it was all face-to-face. In this case, it was face-to-wall in some cases. (laughs) And so uh, I decided in the midst of that that I should go to seminary. And uh, I had come out of a very good academic background. I went to a very um, well-known private school in Houston, Texas, that had prepared me academically. And so... I dove into seminary studies and was off and running, and then I've been pursuing study of the Scripture ever since. Most people don't know this, but if you do serious biblical study, you will learn at least three foreign languages. You will learn Hebrew, you learn Aramaic, and you will learn Greek. And then if you're an Old Testament person, it might take on Akkadian, et cetera. If you do church history, it's Latin. And so mm. so there's a lot of work that goes into doing serious work with the Bible. And uh and so, yeah, so I did that and went from Dallas to Scotland. Uh, I was dating my wife-to-be at the time. Uh, her family was pretty wealthy. He was a doctor. And when we got engaged, uh, mom and dad said to her, her mom and dad said to her, you realize you will never be wealthy, <laughs> and, 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 which was a very astute observation. Sure, totally true. <laughs> totally true. But, but she then married you anyway. And then uh, what's really cool is about 30 years later, they came to us and said, you know what? You all have had the most fascinating life of any of our kids. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Yeah. Talk about your career for a second. Any quickly, just some career highlights. Well, uh, I started off at Dow Seminary for my basic ministerial degree, which is a THM. I majored in Old Testament, uh, and then I majored in New Testament for my doctorate at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, which was three years overseas in the U.K., getting familiar with such theological concepts as cricket <laughs> and, <laughs> yep, uh, and other sports that generally uh, aren't major. to you. Exactly yeah. right, foreign, and, and something to be named later. And then went back and immediately started teaching at Dallas. So I've just completed my 40th year teaching New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary, where I am Senior Research Professor for New Testament Studies and Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Howard G. Hendricks Center for Christian Leadership and Cultural Engagement. And uh, that's a new thing that we did, uh, started about 10 years ago, that is very parallel to what Mm. you all do here, of course, uh, and really represents the culmination of this academic track that I uh, went on going from historical Jesus studies and study of the Gospels to actually thinking through, all right, what does the application of this actually look like in real life? Darrell, during those years where you're really getting into some technical study there. Did your enthusiasm ever waver for the Bible? It can get a bit dry if you're not if you're doing it very technical work. Right, right. But did you maintain the sort of enthusiasm? No, I came into I think uh, my biblical study one having come out of a very conscious decision to go there. So that was a terrific foundation. And then um, my years in college, I also was engaged in a ministry called Young Life, which was a reach of college students to high school students, ran the club at Austin High School. Go, Austin, Austin High. Go, Austin, go. (laughs) And uh, 
So I, I was always had a sense that there was something about what the Bible was doing that enriched life. So as a result, the serious study of the Bible was about studying the enrichment of life, and that always kept me going. Yeah. Well, people would be perhaps surprised to hear that, but what would people discover about the Bible if they had a bit of a closer look that they might not be aware of if they haven't sort of ever dug into it in any serious way? Well, I think that what the Bible focuses on is kind of for lack of a better description, why we're here and what we're supposed to be about, how we were made, what it means to be a human being, what it means to be made, and I'm going to use theological language now for which I, I shouldn't apologize, but be made in the image of God were to reflect the creator who made us. And he made us different, male and female, but he also made us to cooperate with one another so that the creation runs well, at least theoretically. We're all designed to be hummers. <laughs> We're supposed to make the creation hum. <laughs> and obviously something got in the way of that. And so the Bible's honest about our faults and how we come up short on the other. So I think it sets up, at least theoretically, a transparency that's healthy. And then it shows how God deals with that graciously, which is supposed to turn us into a gracious kind of people. We tend to live in a harsh world. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of contrast between the way the world often functions and the way a rich, deep study of the Bible tells us about who we are. So it's like going to therapy without paying for a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> well, just on that, you, you, you've lived long enough to have had joyful things in your life, but also heartbreaks mm -hmm. and difficulties and periods of, no doubt, struggle. Mm -hmm. You're often trying to say that the Bible really speaks into all these times and mm -hmm. places in a way that really resonates. Is that right? That's been your experience? Yeah, it's exactly true. I mean, uh, we. I, I mean, I have to say I've lived a very blessed life. I don't think I've spent a single night in a hospital. Okay, that's probably not true of most people. Mm. Uh, I'm 68 years old, so that, you know, I, I joke, days are coming, saith the Lord. I can't count on that can't being the case, that's exactly right. So we've been fortunate in that regard, but we've been through some hard times. I lost my mom when I was 14 years old to cancer. My father passed away when I was 20 uh, in college. So um, I lost my parents at a very early age. And really those events were catalysts because they made me think about, okay, so what is going on here and what makes life count? those kinds of questions. You lose your parents at that kind of an age. I kind of had to be a dad to my younger sister who was only 15 months younger than I was because my dad was traveling when we lost our mom. And so um, I was ended up being the oldest one in the home, even though I had two older siblings, but they were off to college already. So I had to grow up pretty fast. And so I had, I had what I call a schizophrenic teenage life in which on the one hand, I was growing up and being a teenager, but on the other hand, there was a lot of responsibility that was put on my shoulders at a pretty young age. And so that combination, I think, um, tempered me in terms of the way I thought about life and things I was wrestling with and trying to make sense out of what was going on. I think I'm pretty typical uh, of a person growing up who didn't grow up in a Christian context, in a Christian home. I was trying to figure out where I was, who I was, how to get located, make sense out of life, those kinds of questions. Yeah. Is there a place or a story or a moment in the Bible that you often turn to when, you know, life's a bit difficult and you need a lift? And does it work if you do turn to it? Um, that's actually a good question. I, I would say I'm just um, really captured by the idea 
that despite who we are sometimes, God loved us enough to give of himself for us and what that example actually represents in a world full of difficult situations. I've never gotten over what theologians call the grace of God, the goodness, kindness, graciousness, the fact that, you know, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave. I actually like to stop the verse there. Mm. That here is God loving the world. It's a world that has reacted and gone independent of him, and yet he still gives. Um, And so that's a place of comfort even in the hard places. I think I've come to see that in one sense, life doesn't owe us anything. Right. And I think sometimes a lot of people live with a sense of life owes me, and that can produce a lot of resentment and frustration. And so... I don't see it that way. I I see life deals with you and life kind of has its own, it has its own story in some cases it creates for you that you have no choice. I didn't have any choice about my mom dying at 14. I didn't have any choice about my dad dying suddenly at 20. And I could have reacted negatively and just said, you know, what a raw deal this is or or cope with it. And uh, God was gracious and had a pretty good life. The psychologists often talk to us about adopting a posture of gratitude, mm-hmm. which I, I think is very wise advice. Right. I think you're someone who you know, exudes that. Right. It's good to have someone to actually be grateful to, though. Isn't right. It? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a value in being accountable and not being so independent that you're actually, you know, if we're all completely independent, we're pretty detached from one another. I like to tell people. That when we all act like the great independence is like being on a highway with no rules. Yeah. It's not a variation of Aussie rules. It's something <laughs> even more chaotic. And so, uh, you know, so yeah. there's a challenge about everyone playing by their own rules and doing their own thing. And in some cases, feeling like I need to look out for myself because no one else is. That kind of sense that sometimes people get. And the reverse of that is actually a much more comfortable place to be. There is someone looking out for me. There is... There is a way to make sense out of what goes on in life, even some of the hard things that come your way. Yeah, it's been interesting the last few years, people's sense of community, I mm-hmm. think, where at least for a period there, uh, it felt like we're all in something together. And even though it was difficult, there's yeah. something quite galvanizing about that. But I think we hunger for community, mm-hmm. proper community these days. Yeah, we're actually made for community. You know, the picture of the creation is is that Adam was created and... God paraded the entire creation in front of him. Nope, 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 nope. Created Eve. Whoa. All right. And so we're created for that community. We're created to connect with one another. We're created, you know, we get into debates about how we're supposed to write. I think the lesson of Genesis 1 is we're designed to be collaborators together in managing the creation and stewarding the creation, the gifts that God has given us for the time that we're here to do that well. And we do that because we complement one another. I mean, the whole point of the male-female creation is, is that she offers something to the mix that I can't offer myself. And so that gracious, you talked about a spirit of graciousness, that gracious not only appears in approach to life, that graciousness is about why there are other people around me who aren't like me. And I think when you move in that direction, you open yourself up for that community in a healthy kind of way. And then that ends up being very, very fulfilling in the long run.
This is Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with Daryl Bock, New Testament scholar, writer, and speaker from Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, perhaps a little surprisingly for someone of Daryl's profession, he is a complete sports nut. And that's something we seem to bond over. But he had some interesting things to say about sport and community and an important aspect of being human. You've mentioned AFL and cricket a few times. I do want to talk to you about sport, Daryl, because it is unusual, I'm going to hazard a guess, for a very technical, academic, biblical scholar to be so interested as you are in sport. You know, you and I talk often about the fortunes or misfortunes of the Sydney Swans and other, other sport that's going on around the world. Tell me, is there any connection, though, between those two things, between sport on the one hand and your faith and your commitment there? Is there something deeply human about what happens in those arenas? Well, I'd say there are two things. One is, is that sport is kind of a, a universal cultural connector. You talked about community a second. Well, what more community, even though it, you know, it's not deep, but is there between people who share a team together and root for a team together and what that builds? So there's that element. But I also think that sport is, um, I really do believe, and I heard this long before I was a Christian, and I think it's true, I played basketball growing up, that sport teaches you a lot about life. You know, sport can be as unpredictable as life. And learning how to cope with what gets thrown at you from, I'll use an American metaphor, from left field <laughs> or or, yep. or the in-swinger that you weren't expecting. Yes, uh, uh, you know, a few of those. Yeah, you know, um, sometimes life throws you an LBW. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so how do you how do you cope with that? And how do you win your, particularly if it's a team sport, how do your mates come around you and help you cope with that? The success or the disappointment, because that can go either way. And so there's something uh, life-enriching about what sport offers to people. It's obviously also oftentimes a distraction from a lot of what's going on in the world. But I think there are a lot of life lessons in sport that are worth keeping your eye on. So I, I sprinkle the messages that I give oftentimes with a lot of sports metaphors because I just think they work. Well, they work with me, at least. <laughs> and plenty of you others, understand sure. the world of the LBW, do you? I do. I'm an expert on that. <laughs> I haven't been given out many times that way. Now, these days, um, in philosophy departments and sociology departments and universities and all the ways in which that then filters into other places, the Bible kind of gets left out of the story these days. People think of all the good things of Western history as coming from no deeper than the Enlightenment. Now, without getting grumpy about that, what's missing when you miss the story of the Bible when it comes to the things that have formed uh, large parts of the world in positive directions? Well, I I think that what misses is a sense of our connection to each other in a way that um, actually makes sense. Uh, the Enlightenment is about the great individual, or in some cases, the corporate exercise that allows for the individual's freedom and that kind of thing. But the flip side of that is, is that how do we get along? How do we connect one another? What are we here for? Those kinds of questions. The Bible majors in that stuff. And in ways that take an arrow that perhaps our world points towards me as an individual and pushes it outside to get us to think about others in a, in a really concrete kind of way, at least when it's done right. And I just think the Bible offers that. And then it offers a transcendent reason for that commitment, 
which some people struggle with the existence of God. They, they just think, how could that possibly be that kind of thing? But I actually think it, it's like the missing link. It's the thing that when you drop in place, it not only connects us to one another, but it also connects us to the story of humanity in a big way that um, we tend not to think about. You know, we get so distracted with the individual things that we do and uh, life being so very local uh, that sometimes we miss kind of where we fit. And in an interesting way, we're both bigger and smaller at the same time. Yeah. We're part of a cosmic story. That's a big story. But also one little very bitty piece of, the, <laughs> of that. I, I'm reminded of the times when I fly from one place to another. I'm in a plane a lot, so uh, I think about this a lot. And I look down on the little housetops yeah. as we fly over, and I go, under each one of those housetops is a set of stories yeah. that represent the individuals in those locations. And if they were to walk out on the street and I'm at 30,000 feet, I wouldn't even know they were there. Mm. But there is that individual nature. So we're a small part on the one hand, but we're also part of a bigger thing. The communities that we form are part of a bigger thing. And uh, figuring out how how to make sense out of all that, I think, is pretty important. I think most people, they give up. Mm. They don't think about those things. It's just too big or or there's no answer or whatever. And I think that dislocates people. Mm. And then they kind of, if I can say, float in tweenerville through life. And so you're urging people towards, you know, as, as we, I guess, often are, just to be engaging in those deeper questions. Yeah. What are we here for? What's yep. life about? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Most um, psychologists will tell you that when you look at life at its deepest level, it's about how a person perceives their own identity that drives what they do in life. And when I'm trying to figure out what my identity is, that's not much of a driver. Yeah. Uh, so um, it can be very confusing. And I think the one of the reasons people struggle, they struggled out of the pandemic, et cetera, is because in a lot of senses, they feel a purposelessness in life. And let's face it, life is to some degree purposeless if there isn't a purpose and a purpose provider to it. Hmm. That's actually what I think faith brings. Faith brings a, a location that anchors life and makes sense out of it. Now, you are Christian and American. That has a certain ring to it these days. I want to talk to you about that, the, especially the mixing of faith and politics, because it doesn't appear to have gone well from this distance. Yeah, let's call it oil and water. <laughs> 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 okay. Match and gasoline. Uh, yeah. You know, what metaphor do you want? It's, there is a perception, though, um, for a lot of people now that is pretty negative yeah. when it's associating Christianity with a very particular brand of politics. Yes. And I think it is rightly challenged uh, that that's healthy. You know, I tell people that we have an experiment in the Old Testament. You've got God. You've got God's people. You've got God's law. So you've got, theoretically, the perfect societal setup, yet Israel's history was a mess. Mm-hmm. So we've done the, let's do it by the law. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I could even have a little fun and say, God even tried that experiment, <laughs> okay? And that failed. And what became clear and what the latter part of the Old Testament says is, this doesn't get fixed by the laws that we put out externally to try and keep. This gets fixed by a change of heart on the inside. And so, you know, I think that's the lesson is that we have some people who don't recognize the inherent limitations 
of political solutions. Political solutions are designed to help us live with one another and just cope with our differences. I often say when we're discussing culture and cultural engagement that when the question gets asked, so what does our culture think? I said, we're already off on the wrong foot. Mm. We're not a culture. We are a mix of cultures. They're rubbing against each other. It's like plate tectonics. And so pluralism is about the fact that there are many cultures side by side that have to figure out how are we going to get along and function in a world as diverse as ours is. And politics should be negotiating the negotiation that takes place between these various groups, but it often becomes insisting on what my group wants. And in that, there's nothing but polarization and conflict. So finally, Daryl, if someone were to say, okay, I've listened to Daryl Bock, he's convinced me to at least have a crack, where would someone start if they were to pick up a Bible and tackle it? (laughs) Well, um, They start on page one or not? (laughs) Yeah, start on page. Uh, I would say, this will sound strange, okay, skip, skip around. So you might start on page one. You might start with the story of Genesis, the creation. You hear God's voice as he creates humanity and wraps his hands around what it is that he's created and says it's very good. And then jump, a big jump. Start with one of the Gospels. And someone said to me, start with Matthew, but don't get locked up in all the names and the genealogies at the (laughs) start of Matthew. Just keep reading. Skim that part. And then when you're in the Gospels, ask yourself this question. This is what someone said to me, and I think it was a very good perceptive way to go about it. Ask yourself, who does Jesus portray himself as being? Because what we tend to do is we tend to think, well, Jesus is just this religious great, and he's just giving us a bunch of wisdom. That's not who Jesus is. Mm. He does give us a bunch of wisdom, but in the end, he is the wisdom. And so, you know, John 1 says he's the logos, he's the word. He makes sense out of life. I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. And look to see, one, how he relates to people, two, how he puts himself at the center of God's program, three, how he says that we are designed for and accountable to the relationship that we have with God, four, that God deeply loves us and cares for us and longs for us to to be drawn to him, and then he will care for us if we turn to him. All those relational elements, we think about Christianity as a way of rules or maybe a way of engaging in public, et cetera. No, ultimately, Christianity is about how God loves us, loves us deeply, loves us so deeply that he even sacrificed on his behalf for our behalf and uh, took what we couldn't fix ourselves and offered to fix it for us. But to apply the fix, you got to want the fix. And the beauty is, is that he says, not only will I forgive shortcomings, but I will enable you to walk with me by giving you my presence in your life. And uh, I just think that's worth it. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. My guest today was Daryl Bock. Daryl is Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Centre and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, among other things, Daryl is an expert in the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and he has written many books. We'll put some of those in the show notes. Please do leave us a rating or review. It helps get life and faith out to more people. And do share this or any other episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. Next week... 
and we'd visit the emperor penguin colony, which would live near us. And that was tremendous. I mean, they were just sort of, sort of thousands of birds. They're all sort of huddled together, keeping warm. And it was nice as well, because it felt like you were back in a crowd. Because <laughs> I missed crowds. We were all, there was only 16 of us. So it was just like we were a bit bored of each other. So it was great to meet new people, even though they were penguins.